0: The first series was about um, talking to like older queer people about like their experiences, um, and I feel like that might sound a little bit familiar to you. But um, I didn't know I, like when I started doing the podcast, I hadn't heard about your, like, about making gay history, right? Uh-huh. And then. It was like, I'd done like two interviews and I hadn't released any. And then my friend who didn't know I was doing this podcast was like, oh, just listen to this really interesting podcast. It's about this guy who's gone around and interviewed all these like older queer people and it's like stored the history. And I was like, oh, well, that's it. It's over. (laughs) He's he's done it. Hello, this is Queer Margins. And this series, I'm talking with queer people who work within the LGBTQ plus community. I've been recording these conversations remotely, obviously. And this episode, I'm talking to Eric Marcus. Eric is an author and podcast host. He hosts two podcasts, one called Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, and one called Making Gay History. He recorded brilliant interviews with people like Vito Russo, Silvia Rivera, and Marsha P. Johnson quite a few years ago. And for the last five years, Making Gay History has been bringing the history of the LGBTQ plus civil rights movement to life through the people who lived it. I reached out to Eric on Twitter to see if he'd be interested in taking part in the podcast, and thankfully he was. So at 11am his time and 4pm my time, we jumped on a Zoom call and started our conversation. So here's Eric. So, for like people who haven't heard of making gay history, or like, what's the like the premise? You were researching a book, right, that you were commissioned to write.
1: Yes. So I was I was commissioned to write a book, which was called originally Making History, mm-hmm. uh, meant to be an oral history of what was then called the gay and lesbian civil rights movement. So I knew almost nothing about the subject mm-hmm. uh, right. and had to start from scratch. There was no timeline that I could just find at the library, so I had to build a timeline from scratch. Um, and choose who I was going to interview because this was going to be an oral history which meant people's stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't like most history because I find it boring. <laughs> uh, the recitation of dates and places and, and famous men and what they did. But I love stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so my job was to gather stories and retell those stories in print in the voices of the people I interviewed. Um, that meant doing interviews that lasted for anywhere from two hours to six hours Transcribing all the interviews, which I did myself, which was crazy, and Whoa. I got terrible, ten- terrible tendonitis. Wow! Um, and then translating those transcripts into uh, uh, printed interviews that sounded like the oral histories. Because if you've read transcripts, you can't really read a transcript; mm. it's it's impossible. So, uh, and I also only used about five to ten percent of every interview for the for the book. Oh wow! That's how it all started. Um, the Oral, the, the recordings were never intended for anything like a podcast, like Making Gay History. Mm-hmm. But long story short, we launched a podcast uh, four years ago. It was the brainchild of my founding executive producer, Sarah Burningham, who um, grew up in the UK and did all kinds of work in radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was her idea when she all heard right. the tapes.
0: And like, how did you get back then? Like, how did you get such amazing guests? Because you interviews, like the people that you are guests in like interviewees. The people that you interviewed <laughs> were like amazing, like have lasted like the time, like Silvia Rivera and like Vito Russo. Mm-hmm. Like, how did you? Yeah. Was it through the people like, was it NPR?
1: No. And nobody said, uh, one person said no of all the people um, wow. I spoke with. And actually, I spoke with a lot more people to get the 100 who I actually interviewed. There's um, also not everyone can tell a good story. Um, mm-hmm. And I also had to find people because there was no internet back then. So one of my the most important interviews to me that I wanted was with a woman named Edith Ide, better known as Lisa Ben. That was her pseudonym. Mm-hmm. Um, I took about twenty five phone calls to track her down um, because I only had her her pseudonym, Lisa Ben, um, and so that you couldn't just do a Google search yeah. for her. Yeah. So. Um, in doing my research, I came up with lots of names of different people who I thought I would interview, and I needed each story to move the larger story of the history of the movement forward.
0: Right. So
1: um, it wasn't just casting a net and interviewing everybody. Um, each person had to, had to have a specific a specific purpose. Um, but there, no one said no, except for a congressman named Jerry Studs, um, who was one of the first two out gay congressmen, um, uh, uh, in the US and he kept telling me that he would give me an interview but I never, he never uh, agreed to a date it, up around. it was fine I got, I, I got another interview with uh, Barney Frank who was the other out gay congressman yes. he was such a lousy interview that I didn't include him in the book <laughs> um, he didn't want to talk about anything personal I was like well if you don't want to talk about anything personal yeah,
0: uh, what, what are we here for?
1: Yeah, exactly. He yeah, gave me the exact... I could have been a shoe sitting in the chair and he would have given me the same spiel as right. anybody Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very so like, important, but he was very important, but, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah. So were you just constantly just... just you were just tracking people down through, like, I don't know, like like through contacts and stuff like that, yeah? I
1: tracked yeah. people through through contacts, through the phone book. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I called up people cold, um... Uh, I used all kinds of methods, and I'm trying to think. I was I interviewed some people who were who were family fairly famous. Um, I mean for people like like uh, Al Gore, the vice president, who mm-hmm. I interviewed for the second edition, I had to go through his people, through Ellen right, DeGener- yeah. you know, Ellen DeGeneres through her manager, but. Most people, um, I, I really just, I wrote them a note, you know, to the, their physical address. Um, or I called... That must taken so long. It did. It took a long time now. Yeah. It's so easy now. I mean, you Google Edith yeah, yeah, Eyed yeah. now, or you Google Lisa Ben by her pseudonym. You know, everything comes yeah. up. And then you can be
0: like, like, you can go back and forth trying to find a date. Even when you've got hold of that person, you can be like, are you free this day? No.
1: Like, doing that over ugh, letters, whatever, drag. Um, it's, it was... It was a huge lift and I did it all in two and a half years from when I started the book to when I uh, handed in the manuscript, it was two and a half years. Um, And who would you say
0: is your favorite, like the favorite person you interviewed? I guess it's different now, isn't it? Because like you can, you actually look back at the podcast as individuals, but like who was your favorite, like, yeah, who was the favorite person that you spoke to?
1: I had a number, I had more than a few favorites, Mm -hmm. but there are some stories that really stayed with me and one that was at the top of the list was an interview I did with an 86 year old African-American man, an attorney who had uh, was the first African-American attorney to work for the state attorney general in Colorado, which is a big deal here in the U.S. Um, and uh, so he was in his mid eighties by the time I interviewed him in 1988 um, and had uh, been involved in the, the movement briefly here in the U.S. in the late 1950s. And his personal story was of particular interest to me because in 1920, when he was 16 years old, his parents sent him to a major medical institute to be diagnosed. His father thought he was a homosexual. Um, And to hear that story told by this man who was still vibrant in his mid-80s was so um, moving. um, And to hear of his struggle through life as a gay man, as a black gay man, um, it left an indelible uh, impression on me. And then his final words, his final question to me as I was leaving his house was, do you think it's too late for me to meet somebody? Hmm. Huh. Because he was alone in the world. He'd had two friends in church he was out to who said he, who knew his life. Wow. Um, but they both, died, they both died of AIDS. And so he was very much alone. When we went for lunch, he said, let's sit in the back of the, of the restaurant because I don't want anyone to hear me. And he asked me not to use his name in the book because he was afraid his relatives in Kansas might find out and be embarrassed by him. Oh, gosh. So, um, I had to make a decision when I used his story in the, in the podcast, whether to use his real name. And I, and I thought, I thought that he would want me to, that he would want his story remembered in his, in his name. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Uh, It turns out he's a cousin of a famous football player named Gale Sayers. Um, uh, there was a book written about Gale Sayers, about his, his friendship with another, another football player, um, so that was Wendell Sayers. So also another person I just loved was Dear Abby, one of her allies. She's a straight ally. She was a right. famous, famous um, advice columnist. Yes, um, I
0: remember this. Yeah, I yes, remember this. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, so yeah, she yeah. was
1: as famous as any straight ally could have been when she started writing positive things about gay people in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I have so many favorites. I could keep you on the line for, you know, days. Ma-
0: and my favourite, it's a bit obvious, but my favourite is Marsha P. Johnson and Randy Wicker. Oh my when God. When those two together, <laughs> like, not even just because, like, obviously it's, like, amazing content, but, like, the way they talk to each other is so weird and, like, Randy Wicker, like, talks down to Marsha P. Jo- like Marsha sometimes, and like, it's
1: quite cutting about her,
0: but you can tell that there's like a lot of love there at the same time.
1: Yes, they were like two old ladies. Yeah. Um, or two, an old married couple. That was an accidental interview. So Marsha P. Yeah. Johnson wasn't as famous then as Marsha P. Johnson has become. Mm-hmm. Nor was Sylvia Rivera. Um, and I interviewed Sylvia as well. Um, I had gone to interview Randy Wicker, who had a shop in Greenwich Village. And I, Randy was a natural to interview because he was the first person in the U.S. to, do, to public, publicly mm-hmm. protest in 1964. Um, but as one of my friends would call him, he was a total wackadoodle. Um, he was... Yeah, so, so I got to his store and he said, I don't want to be interviewed here. Let's go back to my apartment in Hoboken. I'm thinking, oh God, you know, why did I even do this? And so we yeah. get to his apartment and Marsha is making dinner in the kitchen. <laughs> and so I'm sitting with Randy in the living room and Randy, like Randy was on... I don't know if he was on anything, but it was like he was on speed. Oh, okay. And then, and then Marsha comes in and drapes herself on a chair, um, dressed. I think dressed in a T-shirt and, and jeans, mm-hmm. um, and drapes herself in a chair like she was as stoned as anybody. I don't know if she was actually stoned, but she was speaking in slow speed. Good. And Randy was like a 78 RPM record. And I thought, I can't get out of here fast enough. And... And
0: See it sounds like you're quite enjoying it I was,
1: I was actually tortured I didn't use them in the book Because I, couldn't, oh, really? I could not imagine Transcribing the interview And right. there wasn't nearly enough Material from Marsha for a book but, mm. but It's perfect for a podcast
0: um, yeah it's, it's only like 20 minutes or something I think isn't it like It is the and, of the, and of the
1: 20 minutes 17 minutes Is Randy Wicker.
0: <laughs> yeah he just took over a lot. But
1: you get a real sense Of who Marcia was mm-hmm. You get a sense Of their relationship Because Randy Would put Marcia down And Marcia would go Right back at Randy With a little zinger And mm-hmm. um, and Marsha also says some important things about her experience at the Stonewall Uprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the myths about Stonewall and about Marsha is that she threw the first cocktail glass with the first brick. I was having a
0: party. Marsha
1: says in her own words, I didn't and get there until 2 in the morning. It was mostly. It was and over by Rivera
0: that. and they were over in the park having a cocktail. I was uptown. I didn't get downtown till about two o'clock. Cause when I got downtown, the place was already on fire. And it was a raid already. The riots had already started, and they said the police went in there and set the place on fire. Yeah, I didn't really put two, those yeah. two things yeah, yeah. together. I guess when I was listening to it, but yeah, you're right.
1: Yeah. So when anybody asks me about Stonewall and Marsha's involvement, I always say, listen to the interview and let Marsha tell you herself. I don't need to. T- I don't want to yeah. tackle any myths about the movement. Always a dangerous thing to do, especially for a white cisgender man of my age. Um, especially speaking about Marsha. So Marsha tells us about what her experience was. She was indeed there. She did was very active in the in the, the uprising, mm-hmm. and then was very uh, uh, politically active in the years that followed. Yeah, but had a very complicated and troubled life mm-hmm. for 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 good reasons, given what the world was like at that time. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah, it's, it's I just yeah I just love that episode so much. It's really yeah, like I said, like the way that they talk to each other, even the way that like. So some, he's talking about something And then he gets really annoyed with her Because she's looking in the, like in the other direction And it seems like the, the, the
1: cat wants to come in or something Oh, the cat wants to The cat has come in And, and, and Marsha was fishing around in a, in a little suitcase that had a blonde wig And Yeah, uh, that's
0: a, God, yeah, it must have been a nightmare actually thinking it about wasn't
1: it It was, and then one of them jumped up I think Maybe in Randy or, uh, or Marsha, I can't remember And the microphone came off And they were little lapel mics That had tiny little foam um, caps on them and the phone yeah. cap came off and I'd had an experience before where a cat had, had grabbed the little phone uh, so I was just I thought oh my god this is you know it was not the ideal <laughs> interview situation but who knew who knew that Marsha would become an icon there's yeah. a new state park in New York that will open in the spring for Marsha P. Johnson here in New York City wow. so awesome. I was lucky yeah
0: yeah. obviously like after the, like you said at the end of the interview with those two that like Marsha died um and was, like, found dead in the river, and, like, a lot of the people you interview are, like, dying when you're interviewing them. Was that, like... Obviously, like, was that... It seems like a bit of a stupid question, but was that, like, hard interviewing them, like, knowing you were were going there to, like, conduct business in a way, like, when they were dying, or...?
1: You ask a very good question. Um, It turns out, and this is after many years of of psychotherapy, that I've discovered I'm Mm -hmm. extremely good at dissociating, which means I can separate myself... And that served me well uh, with these interviews that I did with people who I knew were uh, ill and dying. This was the height of the AIDS okay. crisis, um, yeah. And I, I made a list, a short list of the people, the men I knew I had to interview before they died. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, the interviews were sometimes challenging. Uh, when I interviewed um, Damien Martin, who was an important figure in the in uh, in New York, certainly, uh, he he and his uh, partner. Co-founded the first organization for LGBTQ youth to provide services to them. Um, in fact, Sylvia uh, Rivera and Marsha B. Johnson uh, started a drop-in place for, uh, for homeless street youth. Um, it was short-lived, they were not anywhere near up to doing what needed to be done to create that kind of facility. But Damien Martin mm-hmm. and his and his partner, who's a psychiatrist, and Damien was a social worker, started this organization in the late 1970s. Um, Emery had already died by the time I interviewed Damien, and I had interviewed Emery for my first book in the mid nineteen eighties um, when Emery was already ill for the Male Couples Guide. I had not met Damien until I interviewed him for Making Gay History, so Emery had already died. Damien was ill, and there was a point mm-hmm. in the interview where I knew I could. There were a couple of questions I wanted to ask, and I knew it would be difficult, um, and I, and but I asked them because so I knew I wouldn't have another chance to ask them. He got teary, I yeah. got teary. It was just, I mean, talking to someone who knows that they're likely at the end of their life. And I was 30 years old and HIV negative and I was going to live. Um, hmm. Although I didn't know my HIV status when I started to work on the book and made a made a, yes. you know, made a bargain with the spirit. I don't really believe in God, but made a bargain. <laughs> just let me live to get this book done. Um, when I interviewed Vito Russo, um, we talked about legacy a lot because... He knew his Jeffrey, his boyfriend, had been dead for three years already, and he had been seriously ill. He was one of the co-founders of ACT UP um, Mm -hmm. and wrote an incredible book called The Celluloid Closet, which looked at uh, the role of Hollywood in portraying uh, gay people in a negative light and how that shaped public Mm -hmm. opinion about us. Um, So it was tough. But I also was very good, too good, it turns out, in dissociating because it doesn't serve you well in life, especially in a relationship. To uh, be a cold-blooded interviewer, um, <laughs> so yeah, like, because my next
0: question actually was about um the man who wrote *Celluloid Closet* and about how, like, I think it's towards the end of the interview he's talking about, like, um, like he says something like, "I just want, I want to survive so I can like see what happens afterwards and I can live to tell my story." Like, did you know then? I mean, he probably not knew, but did you know then that like he's a He's not going to survive
1: um, yeah and the odds were that given yeah. given the course of his illness uh, unless something was found yeah. soon um, the odds are he mm-hmm. wasn't going to live to see the day I last saw him a, a few months before he died in 1992 um, yeah. yeah no and and there's I, I interviewed a, a CNN uh, business anchor Tom Cassidy who was it turned out months away from dying um, and these and Tom was only in his early 40s so Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, here I am all these years later and um, I feel a special um, responsibility to tell their stories because they, they died so young, but also a responsibility to all the people I interviewed, most of whom have since died. Um, mm-hmm. And and yeah. I got to meet them all, which is remarkable
0: to me. Yeah, definitely, yeah, 100%. And like, because like, one of the things that I found like during the first series, it was like, obviously really upsetting talking to people who had... Lost, like let's say they were in their like seventies, and they'd lived through like the AIDS crisis in Britain, like mainly in London, um, and like talking about their partners and like friends that have died already, and even though it was like thirty years in the past, like talking uh, thirty four years, talking about it now like would get them upset or get them choked up, and like it would have that effect on me. So like, it's completely. Like you were the other side of it, like living in the moment of it and also like looking forward. Yeah, like, it,
1: was, it, it was, was a nightmare time. For, and we're looking ahead to doing yeah. a season on AIDS in June um, to coincide with the 40th anniversary of the first article in the New York Times about 41 gay men who had this rare cancer, um, what came to be mm-hmm. known as AIDS. Um, and part of the series, at least as we're planning it now, is for our uh, key researcher uh, to interview me um, as part of the series because I was doing the book and doing these interviews mm-hmm. During a, that moment in history when people I knew were dying um, Yeah, yeah, it was it was um, and I, I don't know I don't know how we're gonna do it because I get choked up when I talk about it It's like being back in that time
0: Yeah, I bet And what was going on? so when you were doing those interviews with people who you know generally but also like in that like time when a lot of people were dying. What was going on in your personal life then? I know you mentioned in the podcast and you've said just now, like you got tested for HIV and then you didn't know if you were positive or not. But, you know, what else was going on in your personal life?
1: Um, I, was, uh, I was partnered. Um, my first partner and I met in 1983. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in 88, we would have been together five years by then. He was incredibly supportive of the project. He read every single word um, and edited the book. Um, uh, and during the time I was working on the book, our relationship, uh, I'll put it in passive voice, our relationship got into trouble,
0: um, (laughs) um, just so happened to got into trouble. Just so
1: happened to got into trouble. (laughs) And even though I'd written a book called the male couples guide, I think I would have done a lot better in my relationship if I had read the book and taken in what I had written about best advice for a relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, we were together nine years. We broke up just after the book was was, uh, was published, and mm-hmm. um, he died recently. He died last May. Um, sure. So that was actually, that's uh, um, very sad to me. Mm-hmm. So in my personal life, I was a, a young man in a relationship, not really knowing how to be in a relationship, um, and working very hard on this book. This book um, was so important to me. I wasn't paid enough money to do it full-time, So I did it full-time, and on the side, I wrote ad copy and also wrote a newsletter for a uh, chain bookstore. Um, Hmm. So while I was doing these interviews in between, I would write ad copy for... um, uh, Oh, Dracula's out for blood. Yours, new from Sega Genesis. (laughs) 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 You know, you do do what you have to do. Uh, Yeah,
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And were any of your friends, like... Did any of your friends get diagnosed with HIV during that time as well? I presume
1: um, friends started getting diagnosed earlier than that um, in the early '80s, and I was an early volunteer for the Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York in 1982, and worked with two men who died. Um, and then friends started getting sick, and I helped take care of them. So sure, all during that time, people were getting sick and dying. Yeah. I was lucky that um, I was lucky in the number of people who didn't get sick. Um, my best friend's partner got sick. That was as close as it got. And mm-hmm. was sick for seven and a half of the eight years they were together, um, oh, and he died in the early nineties. And it was uh, uh, it, uh, it was just it was a terrible time. We were all young people, and um, mm. and if you can imagine being your age now, and at the age you are, and having friends around you start getting sick, and and at that time, once you you got a positive diagnosis, the odds are you were going to die. It
0: mm. was the rare ones who didn't. Um, and how about? those you know you met so many people you did so many interviews and like that obviously must have like it has stuck with you but how has it like informed your life as you've grown up and aged to become the kind of like the age of some of the people that you interviewed or well older how has it informed your life becoming like yeah becoming like a more of an adult and becoming I don't know like kind of Passing the age that they were when you interviewed them, how's that informed how you've grown up? As well,
1: mm-hmm. what I took away from the interviews when I did them was that I had ancestors who did really incredible things, and mm-hmm. it, it, and when I need to call up my courage, I sometimes had to tap into what I heard from them, like people like Morty Manford, who at a very young age became an activist. Um, so, um, I don't know if it's affected well that project has affected my life in such a dramatic way. Mm -hmm. Here I am, how many years later from when I first was commissioned to do the book in 1988. And now I've done a podcast and there's been a new, a new play that was written that premiered um, in February, just before the lockdown called Mm -hmm. making gay history before Stonewall. And it had, it had its world high school premiere this past November in in Deerfield, Illinois, outside Chicago. So um, I've had so many incredible experiences because I have been entrusted by these people to tell their Mm -hmm. stories so that I see yeah. as my principal work now. And I, and I do a lot of work with educators in providing resources for um, social studies teachers, history teachers, uh, to uh, include our history in American history lessons. So, um, so, so in a way, those people gave me a reason to do what I do. And they gave me a lot mm-hmm. of responsibility. And they also gave me a second chance at my career. For a lot of my career, I tried to run away from my, what I called my gay work because I felt it wasn't as important as mainstream journalism. So that was mm-hmm. my internalized homophobia. So yeah. it's given me a chance to come back to my work um, and feel good about it and not think of yeah. it as second, second rate. Um, I grew up at a time when, when it was the worst thing I could be was gay. So it's taken a lifetime of struggle to get past that. I mean, I marveled at a lot of the people I interviewed who thought the world was wrong and they were right, like Frank Kameny and Barbara Giddings and others. I wasn't Mm -hmm. that person. Um, I thought I was the worst thing in the world, and I often wished that I was dead. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I often don't understand how the people that I interviewed, like, had the courage to do, like what, in like the early 80s to like go out and be gay and they were just like, yeah, of course I was going to do it. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> yes. It's like, yeah. Because it was illegal and because like, I don't know, like you've like lost contact with your family about it and stuff like that. But I don't know, maybe if I was in that situation, I'd feel differently, but it would be really hard to,
1: yeah, you know, to live that. And it's hard to know how we would have been in that situation. Um, uh, I, I was lucky. I grew up after Stonewall and when things were, were, were expansive here in the US mm-hmm. for gay people. I just assumed that, uh, well, once I came to terms with way I was, I just assumed I could have a life and that I deserved to. Um, yeah. And my route was to, to develop my career as a journalist. I never was closeted as a journalist um, mm-hmm. and was out in my class at Columbia University. There were two of us out of about 150 yeah. and we were warned that being uh, out could ruin our careers. Wow. Um, yeah.
0: <sighs> um, you said something at the start of the answer as well about like your ancestors. And I think like that's something that I was hoping to do when like I started interviewing people is that replacing or replicating those stories that like your families tell your family tell you. And like I've got like really vivid images of like my grandmother telling me and my sister like stories about our family or like me and my sister and my grandmother and my mm-hmm. mother sitting around the kitchen table and like finding out about you know oh your great grandmother did this and like during the war this happened and all that sort of thing and like with with straight people it's kind of like that is their own not their only history but like that sort of thing is inherited but then for us it's like yes we've got all these queer people generations behind us who didn't have any kids and their story is kind of
1: Lots. Right, the, so the chain is the chain is mm. lost, and and by recording these stories, by sharing these stories, it restores something that we didn't, that wasn't given to us as a natural part of our growing up. Um, and uh, it was from when I started interviewing people, I couldn't, I I couldn't believe that, that these people had lives, and they yeah. they, and it wasn't all bad. Um, a lot of people built these these uh, happy lives within the confines, within the restrictions of the world in which they, they lived. Mm. Um, I think what we can take away from their example is that, um, uh, well, that we should never give up mm-hmm. um, and that there are different ways to fight against oppression. Um, and they found ways to do it in a time much more difficult than our own. So we don't have to reinvent the wheel. They, they paved the way mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. Um, and and they're, they're proud stories that are worth retelling. And they are our stories to embrace. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I guess we spoke about like what was going on in your personal life when that was happening. But you mentioned in the podcast about your your mother joined PFLAG, right? Which is the kind of parents of parents and families of lesbians and gays. At the time, it was called that, right?
1: Yeah, parents, parents, families, and friends of lesbians and gays. PFLAG originally parents of gays, POG, right? Um, founded by Gene Manford and Morty Manford, uh, uh, Jean's son. Two of my favorite people who I've uh, stayed in touch with. Uh, Morty died in 1992. I stayed with him mm-hmm. in touch with his mother until she died in her 80s. Um, yes, my mother joined PFLAG. I came out to my mother in, in the late uh, 1977, I believe. And um, she wanted me to see a psychiatrist. I wanted her to go to PFLAG. I said no, she said no. Mm-hmm. It was 13 years before she went to a PFLAG meeting. And then she jumped in with both feet and <laughs> became a big activist. Um, and unbeknownst to me, until I just learned a couple of years ago, she, co- she helped co-found a chapter of PFLAG in Queens, where I grew up, in the, neighbor- in, in the borough of, of New York City. I didn't know this. She didn't tell me. Why didn't she tell you? Because she knew I got annoyed at her sometimes for being a, an activist. Yeah. As I once said to her, I'm gay, you're not gay. Yeah, um, this is my thing. This is my thing. But she. Made You've
0: got straightness.
1: Yes, but she made it her <laughs> thing. She was a, a social worker and a therapist and um, volunteered... <laughs> to lead groups for gay men who had lost their partners to AIDS so uh, my mom loved gay people and gay people loved her and she loved being the son of a big author in the gay world so I was happy to give her that that pleasure
0: (laughs) yeah Um, so she didn't take it too far
1: as long, yeah, yeah. You know, I was not the most tolerant son, but she was also <laughs> yeah, a, a pain in the I ass don't mother. Think, yeah,
0: I don't think it, like obviously like people around you be like, oh my god, it's so amazing. But I, I can see you getting, I can see myself getting rocked and being like, Jesus Christ, like people, why is she in my yeah, business? People
1: loved my mother, mm-hmm. um, but she was a very difficult human being. She, she, she was she had um, quite a profound mental illness, so that made it more right. difficult.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: it gave her great pleasure to uh, be an activist. Um, mm-hmm. My parents were. My dad was a communist and, and, and uh, um, a good communist long ago, and my mother was uh, went along with him, so they were they were left lefties. Um, right. So this gave my mother a chance to do something good, and yeah. she was so well spoken. We were on one television talk show together, and oh, she wow. made a reference. She said, um, "We come from a perfectly normal middle class family," and I looked at her, and I hope the, I don't think the camera was on me. <laughs> Well, I think like, ma, first of all, we were middle class. Uh, my dad worked in the post office, and my mom was a, a part-time secretary. Um, <laughs> and my dad killed himself when I, when I was 12. Oh, wow. And then my mother had an Indian guru and was involved in a cult for years. And I thought, so... What? But she knew she was good at PR. She knew the right thing to right. say. Mm-hmm. So by saying, we come from a normal middle-class family, that anything she said after that, people would accept. If she told yeah. people about the the real story, they mm-hmm. wouldn't hear her. So
0: Yeah, it's like, if it could happen to me, it can happen to anybody. Exactly. But actually, what I'm not telling you is that. Uh,
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so yeah. my mother was very astute, um, and uh, I should have been more proud of her for being astute than I was. Sorry, is Mom. Uh, and yeah. she passed away now, yeah? She died a long time. She died 16 years ago, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned, like, that she said she
0: suggested to you that you should see a um, psychiatrist was that like was that like malicious or was it like what was
1: i um i took it as malicious that my mother wanted me to see a psychiatrist i just assumed yeah. she wanted me to change mm-hmm. um i found out later because we talked about it years later she wanted me to see a psychiatrist because she was afraid that i was depressed which i was and that i would kill myself like my father did Right. so i finally that saw a therapist when i was 21 um, for about a year and spent the whole almost the whole year talking about my father's suicide And then went back to therapy when I was in my early 30s after my partner and I split up Actually, he threw me out um, And I had a series of, of you ba- difficulties. I, I was difficult um, <laughs> So I had a series of bad relationships and I thought I'm doing something really wrong and I went hmm. back into therapy And was just talking with my therapist yesterday because we just celebrated our 29th anniversary Congratulations. And, um, and so often people have said to me over the years, "How come you're so stable and so grounded, and you seem so, you know, so together?" Yeah, therapy, twenty nine years. Wow. Um, and we were just starting to talk about about winding down. Uh-huh. Um, oh, okay. After, and he's you know he's, he's in his seventies, so
0: <laughs> he's like prizing your fingers off his off his desk, <laughs> right.
1: off his ankle, <laughs> off his ankle, and off his desk. Um, but. So, yes, I eventually did see a therapist, and it was very helpful because I still had issues around being gay. Um, yeah. Okay. And the internalized homophobia is very hard to overcome. Mm-hmm. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so how is life
1: now for you? Um, I have very few reasons to complain. Um, mm-hmm. I, I stir crazy because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. I miss the public presentations and sharing. I do this audio presentation of, of Making Gay History and take people through the history of the movement through uh, short clips of, of from the podcast I love that and I love the really? audiences I love their experience of it and the energy that I get back from it so I've missed that a lot yeah, um, but right. I, I live a very privileged life my partner and I have been together for uh, we met 27 years ago right. um, and I haven't managed to wreck this relationship and we actually are doing pretty well, well um, congrats. and we're in good health knock wood um, we have enough mm-hmm. to eat and we both are able to work from home so that's, that's pretty good. And, mm. um, yeah, so I can't, I can't complain.
0: And then, so where do you live now? Are you in New York? Are you in New York? I live in,
1: in Chelsea, um, okay. in New York city, uh, one mile yeah. South of Times Square in a mid 19th century neighborhood. We live in a row house. Beautiful. Um, and, um, we have two tenants. So if the toilet overflows, I get the call in the middle of the night. Fantastic. Um, and, um, um, I do a weekly newsletter for my neighborhood, which I started uh, doing uh, at, oh my god, wow. at the beginning of the, break- the uh, shutdown. I did a newsletter every day because people didn't know where to shop and what to do, and it was a right. huge crisis. But now I do a, a weekly newsletter for my community.
0: Oh my god, that's great! Yeah. That's like such a nice thing to do. Yeah, it's fun. It's a lot, of and fun. also for them getting a newsletter from you, god.
1: Yeah, so I have about three hundred, three hundred people on my email list, and it's hyper, hyper local. You know, it's like what's going on with the tree on our block, and
0: um, <laughs> who left that rubbish there? Yeah. The, oh yeah. Oh oh yes. <laughs> oh yes. Has ever gotten information about um about Be, this about the person who's been fly tipping outside my house?
1: Yeah. People give. Oh, I get tips and I get photographs. Really? Oh no. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah yeah yeah. Oh, I love that. So if you live on the 300 block of West 20th Street in New York City and you're listening to this,
0: let <laughs> me know and I'll put you on the
1: mailing list.
0: Yeah. Um, or. You need to, like, pull yourself together. Yes. Because you're on to them.
1: Yes. I mean, it started literally as a a one... My block association is one block in New York City. Um, So my newsletter was initially just for my one block. But people learned about it. So now it's for people on surrounding blocks and then some friends in Europe and, and other parts of the country subscribe.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I subscribe? Yeah, I'll just put you, put you on the
1: email list. Okay. Yeah. Great. I
0: love that. Okay, <laughs> okay. So, you know, like I, I, me and my neighbors don't really have much of a community, so I'll just join yours.
1: Okay. Great.
0: Great. <laughs> yeah, great. <that> <laughs> um, so apart from the newsletter, I mean, you've got a lot, I guess. But apart from the newsletter, the pug, like the um, podcast for next year, everything else. Like, is there anything else that you're working on? At the minute, you well, seem
1: very this, busy. I'm, I'm in mid-season with the Holocaust podcast. Um, those who right. are there, Voices from the Holocaust, we're, we're just about to uh, plan a third season. Um, I also chair an organization. I do too much, it's my own fault. Yeah. I chair an organization called the Stonewall 50 Consortium, which is an organization of organizations that yeah. um, develop programming exhibitions and educational materials related to uh, LGBTQ history. It started mm-hmm. out specifically for the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. Um, mostly New York City organizations and institutions, 240 uh, organizations and institutions, ranging from small community dance groups up to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Um, And I assumed we would uh, wrap up after Stonewall 50, but the members did not want to end, and our principal funder wanted to continue funding us, so we continue. We have uh, meetings every six weeks, and, um, and we'll go indefinitely, so... God, amazing! Yeah, yeah. Um,
0: and then I think this is my last question, but obviously it'd be like good to know if you've got anything else sure. that you'd like want to talk about afterwards. But I was wondering, um, I guess you've kind of like spanned three generations in, in a way, like you interviewed. People from like two generations ago, you like you yourself are you know one, and then you're kind of like sharing your podcast with like so, like sort of younger generations in a way as well. So I was like wondering, do you have any like advice for younger queer people, or kind of like I don't know, like thoughts for the future, that kind of thing, based on the yeah, in your own life.
1: Yeah, I have a bit of advice, not a lot. <laughs> um, one is don't hate yourself. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> easy for me to say that, but that was my principal problem growing up—that I hated myself, but. Uh, one is, you, we really can't know where we're going if we don't know where we've been. Mm-hmm. So these stories are really useful um, because we can. it's hard to have perspective on where we are in this moment unless we know what it was like decades ago for LGBTQ people. And we can't mm-hmm. know where we're going without knowing that in the first place. Um, so I, that's my advice. Know, know your history. It's important mm-hmm. um, for yourself personally and also gl- more globally for us as a community as we go forward. One of the things that, that um, one complaint I often hear from, from younger LGBTQ people is why can't we be um, more, um, more of a connected community? Why, are we, why is it always so divisive? I wish it were like it was in the old days when gay people got along better. Like, well, you hear these stories, and they were fighting from the very yeah. first. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just human—it's na- human nature to do so. But also, LGBTQ people have all kinds of issues because we bring our anger with us to our community. And mm-hmm. I remember one story um, um, told by a man named Martin Block about an early meeting of the Madison Society in the early 1950s. He said some guys couldn't stand the guys who drank with uh, drank tea with their little pinkies out, and some cool. guys couldn't stand the guys who drank their tea with their pinky in. So um, our divisions go way back. um, And the key is to simply try to be as tolerant as we can of each other, because um, if we're not in this together, then we're in trouble. Thank you
0: so much for listening, and thank you to Eric, not just for saying yes to being interviewed, but also for bringing us those amazing, largely forgotten stories. I loved speaking to Eric for the podcast, his positivity was contagious, and he's such a friendly, open person. I'm sure you're already an avid listener, but if you're not, please go and check out Making Gay History and Eric's other work. You can find links to everything in the description of this episode. And if you want to get in touch with me about anything to do with this podcast, you can do that on Instagram, which is at Queer or through email, which is queermargins
1: at gmail.com. Thanks.